Hey guys, and welcome back to the most bizarre show on the internet. We're the Bizarre Crew. I'm Shane. I'm Oren. And I'm Jenny. And today for you guys, we have our very first local lore. Oren, why don't you kind of give them an idea about what exactly that is and what it's going to be. All right, y'all. So kind of the premise behind local lore is we're going to take either a city or geographic region or sometimes maybe even a state, just depending on how it works out. And uh, each of us is going to kind of pick a topic from that area. Um, I'm going to focus more on kind of the alien UFO side of things. Shane's going to run with cryptids and folklore. And then Jenny's going to do paranormal, ghosts, that type of stuff. Um, So this is our very first local lore episode. And we're going to be focusing on an area that is close to me and Jenny's hearts, the Carolinas. And uh, before we can get into today's bizarro weirdness, we have to knock out the front of house stuff. So, Oren, take it away with uh, how they can share their encounters with us. All right, guys. So if any of y'all want to share strange encounters y'all have had, you can reach out to us through email at bizarreencounters@outlook.com. We're also active on Instagram. That's a great way to get in touch with us. Um, we'd be Excited to hear y'all's stories. We'll share them on air if you want. If not, we'll just uh, keep those stories for our own personal research. But we always love hearing the uh, bizarre encounters of our listeners. And if you guys wouldn't mind reviewing or sharing the show, it's an awesome way to make it so that the show gets seen by more people, gets some more reach. Um, sharing with a friend, also a huge component to that, is all you got to do is drop the name of the show. You know somebody that's into Sasquatch, the paranormal, whatever. Just drop the name of the show. They might you know, retain it in the back of their mind, go home, look it up later. It goes a long way. And uh, if anybody wants to leave an awesome five-star review, we would love to read those on the show, of course. Uh, we have a couple of them, but we're waiting for them to stockpile, and then we're going to give all of you guys an awesome shout-out for taking the time to leave us an awesome review. Um, if you guys want to get some updates on the show, uh, you guys can uh, go and follow us on social media. Uh, that's the best way to get any new updates on any new mini episodes we're doing, uh, any new giveaways we're doing, pretty much anything pertaining to the show. Instagram, that's the way to go. Uh, if you want to have some awesome conversations with some awesome people about some weird, bizarre, fringe topics, uh, you can pop into the Telegram or the Discord. Uh, we're in the process of building those up, so everybody that comes in and contributes is going to be a great help. So... If you guys want to support the show, you can do so through uh, going and checking out our Patreon. There, it's the Open Minds Media Patreon, so you'll get early access to episodes of Bizarre Encounters. You'll get live access to Bizarre Encounters. Uh, there may be some additional bonus content as far as the Bizarre Encounter side coming up there in the future, so uh, definitely go and keep an eye out over there. Uh, you can also support the show by getting yourself some awesome, awesome Bizarre Encounters merch. Uh, we do also have some Bite Size Bizarreties merch up, and all of that is available on the Open Minds Media merch store. Uh, You guys can also donate to the show if you'd like to, and there we can upgrade some equipment. If you guys want to donate in that form, uh, you can donate through Red Circle, which is our RSS host. Uh, Going back to some more merchandise, though, if you guys want to get yourself some awesome cryptid, paranormal, alien-related merchandise, go and check out Crypto Theology. Joe's always killing it over there, always adding some new designs. It's pretty awesome. So do yourself a favor and go check that out. And all the links we've mentioned are on our link tree listed in the show notes. So um, for starting off my section, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Lizard Man of Scape or Swamp. So when you hear about Lizard Man, you know, you probably think of 
reptilians and possible extraterrestrials and whatnot. And Politicians. That's what I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Shapeshifters. But, uh, so that's kind of what I thought when I first uh, dug into this story a little bit. But uh, com- uh turns out that it might be uh, something a little more wild encrypted than that. But um, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> a little bit of background. So uh, the Lizard Man of Scape or Swamp is also known as the Bishopville Lizard Man or the Lizard Man of Lee County. So sightings of this creature entity, whatever you want to call it, began in the summer of 1988 around Bishopville, South Carolina. And a lot of the sightings uh, consisted of reports of a green or brownish colored creature that was seven feet tall. A lot of reports said it had three fingers and glowing red eyes. So uh, that should already um, ring a lot of bells to our cryptid fans out there. But the first report of the creature happened on July 14th, 1988. And the Way family reported that their car had been mauled the previous night. So they went out... uh, to their car the next morning and there were scratches all over their car. There were wires ripped out from the undercarriage of the car. Uh, there was um, chrome for the bumpers and the trim that was ripped off. And there was also large tracks found around the property. Uh, they were of course theorized to be from a bear, but these tracks went in, in a straight line, which of course bear tracks don't do. Uh, it looked more like how humans would step. So uh, this report kind of flew under the radar until the most famous report happened about a month later. So the most famous report of this uh, South Carolina lizard man type creature happened on June 29th. And it was by a 17 year old boy named Chris Davis. And he was coming home from working at McDonald's on the back roads of South Carolina and he got a flat tire. So he gets out to change this tire, and when he's you know done changing the tire, cleaning up the tire and the tire iron and all that good stuff, he saw a seven-foot-tall green humanoid creature with glowing red eyes, and he reported it as having three fingers with claws on them. So, you know, Chris jumps into his car, tries to flee, and the creature jumped on the roof of the car. So Davis drove off, but the creature chased the car down and then jumped on the roof of the car again as he was driving. So eventually, you know, uh, Chris Davis accelerated enough that the creature fell off the car. He made it home and then went and reported this to the authorities the next day. So that brings us to July 24th, when uh, two teenagers rushed into the local sheriff's office and said that they were driving and saw a large muscular animal on two regs on two legs running across the road in front of them. So the deputies went out to uh, investigate the area where this allegedly happened, and they also found three toed footprints. Now, there is some thought that uh, the footprints found here might be a hoax because they looked like almost too perfect. Um, So... Did anybody you know, cast these that you know of? Did you end up finding that? There is some castings of these. The ones that the people thought might be a hoax were casted, and that was kind of why people thought it might not be legitimate is because they just appeared way too perfect. Um, but it seems that the initial report and encounter did happen. It's just kind of the aftermath that might have uh, have not been up to snuff. So then the next big report uh, was by a man named George Holloman, and he said that 10 months prior, he was riding his bicycle near the Scape Ore Swamp area, and he also saw a seven to eight foot tall black creature with glowing red eyes. And he said he thought the creature was covered in hair, but he could not confirm that. And he didn't want to, you know, say anything at the time when this happened to the authorities, but after, you know, two or three encounters with this creature uh, started rolling in and making the news, his wife um, suggested that he come forward with the story that happened to him 10 months prior. Okay, so the next encounter was by a gentleman named George Plyler, and he estimated that the encounter happened in the spring of 1986. So again, this is somebody who had a previous encounter and then reported it after you know the big flap of sightings. And so he said uh, he was working near the swamp um, on a work crew with some other gentlemen 
and they saw a large animal and it was like peering around a tree kind of in like the same way that reports of uh, Sasquatch type creatures are reported as peering around trees. Uh, he said that it had red eyes, but he did not notice that it had a tail. And this was kind of in the wake of, you know, uh, it being dubbed the lizard man. But, you know, all the reports kind of don't allude to many lizard-like qualities. So that's kind of one of the, the mysteries in this case. How did this creature become known as the lizard man? It's a Sasquatch uh, but, or a dog man with mange. <laughs> uh, we're getting there. We're getting there. But uh, anyway, three-toed tracks were also found in the area um, of this report. So the next one is one of my favorite reports. Uh, it was by a man named Frank Mitchell, and he was a local crop duster in the area. And so he had like a runway uh, on his property where he would, uh, you know, his crop duster would take off. And he said that about a month before the Chris Davis sighting, the, the most popular one, that he saw a strange creature walk across the uh, runway in front of him while he was trying to take off. So, you know, he's taking off, the creature walks in front of him, he gets airborne and is looking back trying to find this creature, and he said that it was grayish brown, and he said it had a face like a monkey, which I think is uh, another good detail. And he said that, you know, the creature looked more like a monkey than a lizard, and I think there's a quote that he says something to the effect of, I don't know how that creature became known as the lizard man because it didn't look like no lizard to me or something to that effect. So after that, uh, the sightings kind of petered off for a while, and it wasn't until about two years later when the Blythers family had a sighting on July 30th of 1999 when they were traveling along the Skateboard Swamp area, and they saw a large thing covered in brown hair and it also uh jumped at their car window like you're talking about kind of like dog man type uh behavior so that was in 1999 uh, or uh excuse me 1990 in 1991 there's another report by brian and michelle elmore and they were again driving along in the scape or swamp area and they almost hit a large gorilla like creature with their car and michelle um, the lady in the story was even quoted as saying that the creature was a Sasquatch, that it, it fit all the descriptions of a typical Sasquatch. It's only kind of lumped in with the Lizard Man sightings because of proximity and the time period. So again, uh, the sightings kind of stopped for a while. And in 2008, there was another report of vehicle damage, kind of in the same way as the very first report uh, with, you know, the, the trim of the car being ripped away and there being claw marks and, um, and things of that nature. And so there's actually DNA testing done at this point because, you know, this was 2008. This was much after uh, the initial reports and technology had got a lot better at that point. And the reports came back inconclusive, but they said it was most likely a domestic dog, which again, dog man possibility there. Um, so kind of in a sad turn of events, a lot of people who reported sightings of this creature kind of met untimely deaths. So there's um, speculation about a lizard man curse. Uh, Chris Davis, uh, the person re uh, responsible for the most famous sighting was actually murdered in 2009 in a drug-related incident. So that's kind of the just the, the big, popular, most famous sightings of this creature. And uh, just a little bit of my own theories, kind of like we talked about, the vast majority of the legitimate lizard man witnesses didn't report anything remotely lizard-like. All of them reported something much closer to a large hairy hominid. So, was the lizard man actually a misidentified Bigfoot or skunk ape, or like we were talking about, even a dog man? You know, I think the fact that the creatures seemed to attack cars, both stationary and while they were moving, kind of lends a lot of credence to the dog man idea. 
the only thing that kind of makes me doubt that is no one really reported, uh, you know, the intense feelings of fear or evil that a lot of people report with Dogman. So, in my opinion, I think the most likely scenario is it was something close to the skunk apes of Florida. Because, you know, this was in a swamp area where all this happened. Um, the skunk apes, you know, are generally reported as being a little smaller than normal Sasquatch. And this creature was reported being anywhere from, I think, five to eight feet tall. So kind of on the lower end of most Bigfoot reports. Um, and also, you know, the three-toed footprints, there are plenty of examples of Sasquatch Bigfoot-type sightings where there is three-toed footprints reported. Um, the book that I, you know, talk about all the time on the show, the Where the Footprints End, in Volume 2, they talk about three-toed footprints a lot. There's a, a whole section about three-toed footprints. So I think, in my humble opinion... Obviously, these people weren't seeing anything remotely lizard or reptilian-like. Uh, it was either some sort of dogman or some sort of Sasquatch entity, and um, I'm kind of going with the skunk ape idea. So that's just the short and sweet uh, story of the scape or swamp lizard man, lizard man of Bishopville, whatever you want to call it. He goes by many names, but uh, there you go. So that's kind of my portion on local lore. I mean, as far as I go, I kind of gravitate towards the dogman thing, but my reasoning behind it is, of course, you know, I've dug in on do it on previous shows, especially like the dogman series about the whole idea about government created dogmen. So I almost wonder if this is possibly like one of the first generations of that alteration or the other way you can look at it is maybe the first sighting was more reptile like and it was more of like a one off sighting. And then just because of geographically, where everything was kind of like you were saying it was actually two different things people were seeing where they were seeing like a possible skunk ape and they were seeing a possible reptilian man but then kind of clarifying them as the same possibly um i mean there's well, a couple different um, angles i could come at it with i wasn't even going to come at it with an alien angle until you said they jumped on the car and then i was like no that's too animalistic <laughs> and i should have put this in my notes but one of the uh, reasons that people speculate that it kind of got the Lizard Man moniker is it's speculated that this thing had longer hair, kind of like a skunk ape, because, you know, the skunk apes are often reported as having longer hair than the typical, like, paddy-type Sasquatch. And that since it was living in the swamp, that mud got caked into the longer hair of this creature, and then... You know, it cracked and whatnot, and so when people saw this at night and from a distance, it looked more like scales than actual fur. So that's kind of a theory on, one, where the uh, the Lizard Man name came from, and also I think kind of adds more credence to the idea that it could have been more of a skunk ape type creature, but... Like you said, the whole car thing, like we just did our whole series on Dogman and them chasing cars and attacking cars comes up again and again and again. And that's why I thought it was so interesting when I started digging into this that that's a huge component of a lot of these reports. So I was just going to throw it in there, too. What does the uh, dried mud on the Sasquatch hair sound like? It's, it sounds like another uh, Native American folklore thing. Sounds like the Stone Men. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Um, and, you know, that also kind of gets back to Bigfoot-type ideas, too. So, In a matter of perspective, yeah. I could definitely see how they could, just like you were saying, see it as reptilian, and then some people perceive it as, like, more stone-like because of just the cracks and the way it looks. Well, and, and glowing red eyes and three fingers, I mean, again, we talk about this on the show sometimes. When you're in that heightened sense of fear you're not seeing things clearly probably so i mean it seems to me that there's enough evidence that what these people were seeing was not of a reptilian nature it was you know some sort of bipedal something much closer to a mammal um you know whether that be bigfoot skunk ape dog man what have you yeah, obviously we'll never know, but I think this story is so interesting because it's recent enough that you kind of see in real time like folklore growing and 
becoming developed and also how easily things can get lost in translation and skewed and twisted because and i mean if we didn't have all these reports and all this good evidence you know a hundred years from now people might look back and be like oh well it was a lizard man that's what it was was a lizard and so that kind of makes me wonder how many old reports of cryptids and strange creatures might actually be something other than what they were reported as funny uh, that you mentioned that for all the listeners coming up in the future we have an episode that i've been working on that specifically falls into that where it's a matter of everybody kind of grouping and creating their own myths based around something but again i don't want to give away too much of that show but it's going to be a really good one so i'm glad that you dropped that because now i can kind of give a little teaser to the listeners <laughs> just, uh, just teasing you guys so uh shane jenny and if y'all don't have any more questions or comments about the lizard man i'll kick it over to you shane and you can talk about uh, another cryptid of the carolinas just one last comment, and then I will hop into the uh, the one that I got for you guys tonight. Um, you know, we've discussed it on the show even with the whole idea of the dogmen possibly being like a subspecies of Sasquatch. So, I mean, looking at it from that angle, it fits into the Sasquatch perspective that you're looking at it from. It fits into the half Sasquatch, half dogman perspective mm -hmm. I'm looking at it from. So, again, it has the, the look and the features of a Sasquatch with the characteristics and actions of a dogman. So, again, if that is the case, it may even more so further our theory that it is a subsection of the yeah, same thing. Yeah, or some sort of you know missing link for lack of a better term between the dog man and the bigfoot because like you said it definitely is reported as having traits and characteristics that could fall into either category exactly <laughs> so yeah so i guess it's definitely an interesting one I, I mean i didn't know a whole lot about it when i dug into it and i was expecting it to be something uh far more alien than it ended up being <laughs> so we're kind of double dipping on cryptids on this one <laughs> But at least they're a very good different variation of cryptids. Yes, so, very different. Without further ado, as far as cryptids go, um, I, today I have for you guys uh, the Beast of Bladen Barrow, a.k.a. the Vampire Beast. And uh, as usual, I kind of get overextensive on this one, so I'll try to run through it as fast as I can. But I'm very, like you were saying before, with trying to keep the details of the story, that's kind of like how I come at my research. So I try to include all of the pieces so that you can kind of keep all of the folklore together. And at least that's kind of my perspective on coming at things. But I end up overkilling it because of it. But, you know, <laughs> not necessarily a bad thing. But anyways, getting into this one today. Although you've likely never heard of Bladenborough, you might be surprised to learn that it's home to a very intriguing North Carolina vampire beast legend. In the early 1950s, locals reported a strange creature emerging from the woods and killing multiple livestock and dogs, leaving their mutilated bodies behind. This happened several different times within the course of a month, and the strangest thing was that the creature seemed mostly interested in drinking blood. Thus was born the Beast of Bladenborough legend that still thrives in the area. The story behind the vampire beast terrorizing Bladenborough is a long and strange one. Between footprints, animal corpses, and eyewitness sightings, it's clear that there is some sort of mystical beast in the area, and no one is really sure what it is. Mysterious animal deaths still crop up in the area from time to time, lending some to believe that the beast may still be on the loose. There are few myths about vampires in the United States, and this one is certainly memorable. Whether you yourself have spotted the cryptid or whether you just enjoy the legends, it's interesting to ponder what's lurking out there in the woods and why gruesome mysteries like this remain unsolved. The first sighting of the beast happened back in 1953. On the evening of December 29th, a woman heard her neighbor's dog causing a fuss outside at night. They were barking and whimpering as if they were in fear, and she went out to check to see what the matter was. To her surprise, she reportedly found a large cat-like creature that she thought was a mix between a lion and a bear. It slunk away into the darkness before she could get a decent look at it, however, leaving her reasonably shaken from the experience. But that wasn't all. In some accounts of the incident, the dogs did more than just bark. The creature came prowling back and ended up killing both the dogs in a horrifying manner. Later on, there would be more sightings and more killings, but it was on that day that the Beast of Bladenborough was born. There was one chilling factor that set the beast apart from an average bear or wild dog. It seemed fixated on blood. When dogs and livestock began turning up dead, local authorities found that the animals had been drained of blood with only few drops left in the corpse. While some of the victimized animals were horrifyingly mutilated, some bodies were found simply with bites and broken bones and were flattened. 
One witness even recalls that it seemed like the strange animal was drinking blood from one of the dogs it had killed. Newspapers, as you may guess, latched on to the notion that there was a bloodsucker about and began describing the beast as vampiric. This also gave rise to the notion that the beast might be something supernatural or mutated, as few animals in the world particularly feed solely off blood. While this mystified and insatiationalized the beast, it also frightened people, and they soon decided the beast had to be caught. While the beast took down livestock, including goats, pigs, and perhaps even horses, its preferred prey tended to be dogs, leading to further speculation that the vampire might be more cat-like than wolf-like, as cats are notorious enemies of dogs. After the first sighting in December, the beast reemerged and went on a rampage. On New Year's Eve 1953, Woody Storm found two of his dogs gruesomely killed on his property. Both had obviously been brought down by something large, as they were not exactly small dogs, and had been drained of blood. Over the next few days, reports came in from all across the county, all reporting that dogs had been killed by some massive cat or bear or monster. The animals sometimes tore the dogs apart, drained their blood, or just dragged them off into the woods. A few of the poor animals were not found until later, dead and mutilated in the woods. But why did the beast particularly target dogs? Nothing's ever been proven. The other telltale sign that the beast had been at work was that the bodies of its victims were found ridiculously mutilated and not just slashed stomachs either. The beast had decapitated its victims or at the very least smashed their skulls to the point of them being flattened. Many of the bodies later found in the woods were completely missing their heads and one rabbit was found completely decapitated and still warm as if the creature had snapped off its head in one bite before fleeing. Dogs were often found with their lower jaws torn completely off or smashed back to the point of being unrecognizable. This indicated that the creature was strong, and it cast serious doubt on later suggestions that the animal was merely a bobcat or stray hound. Another thing about witness reports is that the beasts of Bladenborough made an absolutely chilling sound. While many accounts differ in the size and color of the beast, most agree that the call sounded particularly human in an unearthly way and truly unnerving. Some described it as the sound of a baby crying in pain somewhere outside. Others said it was like a woman screaming, and if she had been stabbed or had been hurt. Some people even reported seeing the animal open its jaw to make the sound, so it was not the noise of one of its unfortunate canine victims dying. No matter how it was described, pretty much everyone agreed that, that the beast's call was positively blood-curdling. While the beast definitely seemed to prefer canine prey, it did once try to attack a human. On the evening of January 5th, 1953, Mrs. C.E. Kinslaw was in her home and she heard some strange noises outside. The dog sounded like they were whimpering, so she went outside to see what the matter was. There, she saw a massive cat-like creature approaching her dogs, and it quickly turned its eyes on her. The beast rushed at her as if it was going to attack her, and she screamed before running inside for help from her husband. Apparently frightened by her screams, the beast slunk back into the woods. The beast never attacked another human. However, the incidents made the papers, especially noting that there had been tracks left outside. It proved that the beast was real and that it could be dangerous to people. After the mysterious and gruesome deaths of so many livestock, people who lived in Bladenborough decided it was time to take the beast down. In January of 1954, a massive group began to comb the forests and swamps trying to find this mysterious creature. The hunt got so big, in fact, that the big game hunters came from miles away and across state lines just for a shot at tracking down the creature. Of course, given the rough terrain in the area, it was difficult to track the beast and even more difficult to catch it. And after a long while had passed, the mayor called off the hunt, but not before the tantalizing moment of near success. One man caught a wild cat in a trap and newspapers circulated images saying that the beast had been caught. Not only did experts agree that the animal was far too small, but there was also more killings after the wild cat had been killed. It was incredibly unlikely that this cat was the actual fabled beast. As to what the beast is, nobody is sure, but there are plenty of theories. The most obvious is that the animal is some sort of mountain lion, also called a catamount or cougar. But blood sucking doesn't exactly make sense in the case of cougars. So some experts have speculated that perhaps the animal lapped up the blood after crunching on the bones and bodies rather than actually sucking it out. Along these lines, a bobcat has also been suggested, 
even if most people agree that there are not big or that they are not big or strong enough to fit the beast characteristics. Another theory says that the beast is actually a large dog that was raised by locals before escaping and that it was supposedly truly massive. Some others have even said that it is simply a bear that people mistook for being cat-like in the dark. The beast of Bladenborough seems to grow bigger and more frightening with each retelling of the legend. Because of all the attention and notoriety the animal received, some people were attached to the beast myth for personal gain. Some hunters killed bobcats and displayed them as a legendary beast, even asking for payment for viewing. Some pranks, though, were more silly and harmless. One Bladenboro resident later confessed that he intentionally created fake evidence of the creature for attention. He and his friends found a large dog, possibly a greyhound, and then took the animal to a creek where the bank was still soft. Then they tied a bag of dried peas to its tail and turned it loose. The sound and feeling of the peas frightened the dog, and it leaped around, creating strange and frantic paw prints in the mud. Then they went to reporters and said that the tracks were from the beast. Though these sightings were false, there was plenty more witnesses who claimed that their sightings were genuine. The beast was spotted on the outskirts of town in Bladenboro, North Carolina, which is located nearly an hour from any other city and boasts a population of about 2,000. In fact, one of the town's only real claims to fame is its legendary beast, and this is what put it on the map. News sources all along the coast and in many other states reported on the strange killings, and nearly overnight, Bladenboro became a recognizable name. When you think about it, though, North Carolina is a great habitat for cryptids. Bladenboro, in particular, is surrounded by both forest and swamps, which makes combing the area for signs of an unknown creature rather difficult. Although the creature appeared on the scene and wreaked its worst havoc in the 1950s, the beast still resurfaces from time to time. In 2003, more farm animals and dogs began to turn up with crushed bones, bite marks, and very little blood in their bodies. Strange tracks were also found near the bodies, leading people to believe that the beast was back at work. It didn't just stop with dead livestock and pets. The beast then returned to North Carolina in 2007, bringing more surprises and fear with it. In Lexington, 60 goats were found with their blood drained and their heads crushed. 30 miles away in Greensboro, another farmer lost his goat in the same way. In Bolivia, a man named Bill Robinson lost his pit bull to the creature. He buried it, but the next day, it was in the same location where it was killed. Four days later, another resident, Leon Williams, found his pit bull dead, and it was covered in blood and it was missing a few body parts. There was signs of a struggle, which is strange for a pit bull. Other places lost a total of 10 dogs in just two weeks. More tracks were found. These ones were measuring four and a half inches in diameter. In 2013, a local family reported that their dog and three of their horses had been slaughtered at night. These dogs had been barking, and when the son of the family, Tyler, investigated, he said he had seen a strange creature in the shadows, running away from the body of a dead dog. The dead animals had been drained of blood again. Given that the attack again happened in Bladenboro, people quickly linked the attack to the beast. The TV show Monster Quest did a search for the beast. They concluded that what people had been seeing and killing was a cougar. However, the cougars have been dismissed as extinct throughout the east coast of America, except for the tip of Florida. Even though the beast has killed numerous family pets and livestock, the locals actually celebrate the creature rather than fear it now that its activity has somewhat subsided. Some older folks are reluctant to talk about it, but at the same time, as one local puts it, there is such a thing as too much publicity for a small town. As if to prove that, the town now has a festival called Beast Fest, held annually. There's live entertainment, food, and admission is free to anyone who shows up. The family-friendly festival is meant to boost the small town and draw in tourism, capitalizing on its dark experiences with the murderous feline cryptid. Around 10,000 people generally attend the festival, many of them hopeful that maybe, just maybe, they might catch a glimpse of the legendary Beast of Bladenboro. All right. No, that's good. Um, that I'm, was super cool. Like, I, I am not familiar with that, but I bet I'm going to fall penis deep into it now. <laughs> like those hot blood-sucking cougars? Cougars, yeah. yeah. yeah we, we need more information about that. Hot blood-sucking but, cougars where? <laughs> yeah, they're probably in your area. Just uh, just look at your search history. But, um, no, so I'm glad you included the story about the guy who had the dog that he buried, and then like the next morning, um, 
he found the dog like out of its grave and where he initially found it. Like I think that's probably the most interesting aspect of this whole story. Cause you know, we've talked about this a little bit on the show, but when a lot of people talk about cryptids, they're not actually what the, you know, uh, dictionary definition of a cryptid is for, you know, our listeners that don't know the true definition of a cryptid is, a undiscovered animal. When we talk about, you know, Mothman or the Flatwoods Monster or things like that, a lot of these things aren't actually cryptids if they exist. They're something way weirder than that. But I think the Beast of Bladenboro is a cryptid that was probably actually a cryptid. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, in the same way that a chupacabra is probably some sort of actual cryptid. I think there's a whole lot of similarities between this story and the Chupacabra tales. So that's something that always pops up in my mind when when I hear this story. And I didn't mean to steal your thunder there, Shane, oh, but yeah. uh, I've got a lot of thoughts on this one. That so. was honestly the route I was going, was it sounds like a, like a feline Chupacabra. But again, mm-hmm. it's a matter of perspective. So, I mean, theoretically, this could be a Chupacabra or it could be like a more northern version of a Chupacabra. But again, through perspective, people just associate it with a feline. And once one person says that, everybody's going to start seeing a cat instead. And I mean, the fact that it also attacks dogs sounds kind of Chupacabra-like too. Um, I mean, because assumably too, if, it, if it's territorial and there's other dogs in somewhere that it sees as its territory, it almost seems a little bit more dog-like, like I was saying, more like Chupacabra-like, like... It may be more canine because I mean, a, a feline I feel like typically doesn't like dogs, but they tend to just try to avoid it rather than confront it directly. Where it's a dog with another dog coming in its territory, where it comes at it directly, and that's that's kind of how I view it. Well, and another thing that I think is interesting is a lot of these places where the chupacabra activity is reported, they just naturally have a whole lot of goats in those areas. So it makes sense that a goat is what this cryptid creature attacked well in 60 of them (laughs) yeah yeah but in north carolina i mean or anywhere in america probably there's more dogs than there is goats so it kind of makes sense that that's just what the you know for lack of a better term food supply was at that point so um my other question too is is it one specific if it's taking out 60 goats hear me out is it one thing or is it a bunch of, of something, yes. Yeah. Because I feel like yeah. at the levels of how many animals it was taking out, there was the smaller attacks where it's like one or two, so maybe like some of them have died off, there's only a couple of them left in the area, but when these attacks were first happening, it almost seems like there was multiples of them. Yeah, I mean, that seems like a whole lot of damage for one creature to do. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure quite where I fall on this one theory-wise. I think, you know, it's it's very possible that this is some known creature, maybe, I mean, like a rabid uh, cougar or something like that. Or it could be something stranger. And I think, like you said, the fact that there were so many reported attacks kind of lends credence to the fact that this could be something that was undiscovered. The head crushing, then, too, that brings in a whole other yeah. aspect of like that shows the strength of something if it's able to crush the skull of almost anything that it attacks. And that's on um, Chupacabra like I've never heard of a Chupacabra smashing a skull. If I'm not mistaken, I think there is some reports around the uh, Beast of Bladenboro as far as like puncture wounds. That's kind of reported with Chupacabra. And uh, don't quote me on that because I could be getting my wires crossed. But I think I've come across that at some point as well. Yeah, there's always the puncture marks when it comes to like the Chupacabra stuff. That's exactly, again, like why my mind phased that way. But again, like the crushing head thing. Like, it almost seems like it kills something and it still has, like, like what, what reason would an animal have to crush another thing's skull unless it's, like, intentionally trying to eat the brains, possibly? Um, uh-huh. I don't know, almost like cracking a nut? Like, that's the only, like, logical thing I could think of for an animal okay. to crush another animal's skull, We're you know? We're talking about blood-sucking cougars and cracking nuts. This episode is getting <laughs> spicy really quick. But uh, Those blood-sucking nuts, cougars uh, will crack your nuts. It, they will. They will. Um, but jokes uh, but no so at first i thought you know a possible theory is it was just some rabid known animal but like you were saying like the the skull crushing and all that like that's not behavior that even a rabid animal does 
So I, I think this is a good one. I mean, I think there's many different directions you can go with it. That kind of brings an intelligence to it with the skull crushing. Because like, you, yeah. there's like a thought process behind that. Like, like I said, other than if it's trying to like crack a nut, so to speak, and try, it's trying to eat the brain intentionally, like I can't think of any other reason why an animal would logically have a reason to do that. It seems like it's going beyond hunting to me. Yeah. You know, it, it's trying to kill and inflict damage and... You know, that, like you said, seems to tend to be something with more intelligence and undiscovered and maybe something a bit stranger than a bear with mange or either assumably it's hitting it multiple times or this thing is big enough that it steps on a skull and is able to crush it from its weight. So there's there's two options. Either there's an intelligence of it that it's actually intentionally repeatedly hitting the skull or two, it's just big enough that it literally will step on a skull and crush it. Yeah, yeah, and something that I think kind of muddies the waters on this one too is there seems to be a pretty big divide on the people that reported it as more canine or more feline. And like you said, that could just be kind of like we were talking about with the lizard man, just, you know, one person says it and then people just run with it. But I think it's also possible that this is one of those situations where there's more than one thing happening at a time. Yeah, even if it is, like I said, multiple beasts of the same species, there's there's multiples of something going on. <laughs> yeah, and it could be, you know, some of these attacks were just, you know, a rabid feline or something like that, and some of them were something stranger. Who knows? But it is kind of funny, like you said, that all this happened in a relatively small geographic area that's in the middle of nowhere. So and the main of it happened within like a two-year period. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, where did that thing come from and what was it? Again, we'll we'll probably never know, but just like the, the lizard man we were talking about, I think that this one, it really benefits from like unpacking it and looking at the possible explanations for this because... It's probably not as simple as, oh, it was just some feline or canine type creature. It, like we were saying, it seems like something at least a little more strange was going on. So, mm-hmm. Or just another theory to throw in on this whole thing. Justin was recently talking about hyenas on Cryptids of the Corn, and I highly recommend that episode for anybody that didn't go and listen to it already yet. But he was talking about how, one, when hyenas are in a pack they'll stay in like small packs and they'll one they'll attack things uh like from hidden vantage points like they're not one of those like an ambush predator they're one that they'll hide and then they'll ambush and attack something so it kind of fits the whole idea of people not actually seeing this thing solid or only seeing one at a time as it was attacking something um and then the whole idea of hyenas have these crazy powerful jaws and i've heard from couple different sources that they're capable of crushing skulls in the process of that so if you had a small pack of hyenas and they're all going at one specific animal um i it could pop into that whole skull crushing theory possibly crushing the rest of the body if it's a small pack attacking and then even to connect this in with a more real world thing uh a lot of people don't realize it but hyenas were a household pet up until like early 1900s so there's a lot of them that got released there were some that were already natural to hear so there's already a presence of hyenas in america and on top of that hyenas are also supposed to be a highly adaptive animal under humans and rats that you could pretty much throw them into any environment and they're going to find a way to live and adapt so part of that of course is finding a new food source and one of those food sources might be these farm animals that aren't doing much or a dog that's docile and just trying to go out to go potty and then they get ambushed by a pack of hyenas but at least where i'm sitting right now i feel like the best possible explanation to the beast of Ladenborough might be a small pack of hyenas. No, I think it's a good theory. And, you know, we were just shooting the shit in the kitchen cooking the other day, and we were talking about hyenas, actually, even before uh, Justin and Jay's episode aired, about how it could possibly be responsible for some of the dog man stuff, too. Because I mean, hyenas are mean, you know, and... Going back to the Bladenboro thing, you know, some people described it more cat-like and some people described it more dog-like. Well, what does a hyena look like? A mix between a dog and a cat. 
And, you know, it's always been my theory that the Beast of Bladenboro probably was not like a undiscovered cryptid or anything, but something kind of more natural than that. So, I mean, once you get over the mental gymnastics of how did hyenas get to middle of nowhere, bumfuck North Carolina, you know, I think, I think it makes a lot of sense. And if you look at the one depiction the, like drawing the one really good drawing depiction of the Beast of Bladenboro, which will be included in the cover art, of course, if anybody wants to go and check it out, and you compare it next to a picture of a hyena, it almost looks pretty damn similar with just some features that have been kind of like over-exaggerated, of course, because it's a monster and people are scared of it, like bigger teeth, but the whole drawing of it is extremely hyena to me now that I'm going back and looking at it. Yeah, and I think you know, kind of even going a step further... A lot of the chupacabra type stuff could kind of fall in this category as well, because even like, you know, the spines on their back and whatever, like, it kind of could be just how people are describing, you know, like how hyenas are shaped in their fur, you know, they're kind of weird looking. So I don't know, not to go too far into it, but I think maybe hyenas are the answer to a lot of cryptids. Honestly, and from everything that I've gotten, I like to throw in weird explanations, but if I had to put my money on anything of what the Beast of Bladenboro was, assumably it's a pack, and that would be why it attacked so many different things over a certain amount of time. Assumably it wasn't a single one, but like I, I keep going back to hyena at this point. I think, it, I think it was a hyena that somebody let out at one point. or Again, they could just be residual living here, because if they're fully able to adapt to environments, even if somebody let a handful of hyenas out, you know, a hundred years ago, you know, they, they could have easily produced a breeding population and they're a predator. They're an animal that doesn't like to be seen. So again, they're going to be hiding to begin with. And if people see that off in the distance, you know, they might even confuse it for other animals, you know, like they might even think it's some kind of dog, for example, like a mange dog or just like a, yeah. like a, you know, dog that somebody let loose or even on another aspect of it, you know, if you're far enough back, depending on the coloration of it, people might even mix it up as like a mountain lion, for example. Well, yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, a lot of 1940s, 50s rural North Carolinians would not have a good frame of reference for what a hyena was. You know, so I think that could explain a lot of the the differences and discrepancies in the description of this thing. But no, like I said, I think to me, bottom line is what we know, how it was described. Some people said it was a cat. Some people said it was more dog-like. That's a hyena. So. <laughs> Meet him in the fucking middle. Yeah, there you go. And just a fun fact for everybody that isn't aware, technically hyenas are more closely related to cats than they are dogs. Just want to throw that one out there. So with that, now we get, we're going to mix it up. We're not going to hit you guys with another cryptid. We're going to hit you with a paranormal tale. So I mean, we could probably talk about more cryptids if you want to. I'm always on talking about cryptids. <laughs> I mean, shit, I am the cryptid guy. <laughs> King cryptid over there. Yo, yo, what do they call me? Hippie Squatch. But I'm not Hippie Squatch no more because I ain't got the lock, so I don't know what to call myself anymore. <laughs> uh, hippie Squatch that had to join the professional workforce or something like that. <laughs> Gentrified Squatch. That's what we'll call you. I was going to say, I don't want to be Corporate Squatch, and that kind of sounds like where you're going at. Corporate Squatch. I like that. <laughs> no, no. So we're going to take, we're going to lighten this up a little bit, and we're going to talk about a ghost house, or a spooky house, or a scary house, or a haunted house. So... What about the blood-sucking cougars? There might be some on this property. <laughs> I mean, it was a plantation, so who knows. So, basically, the reason I did this one is that I passed this house every day on my way to work. And I told Orrin one day, I said, I think this is historic. I think there's something, a big deal to do with this house. So, jumping right in. Okay, we're going to talk about the Mordecai House or Plantation. So, the Mordecai House was built in 1785. It is, um, the oldest portion of the house was built by Joel Lane for his son, Henry, and later Henry's wife, Polly. Um... Lane was considered to be the founder of Raleigh. It is the oldest residence in Raleigh that's on its original foundation. So the house was named after Modus, Modus, sorry, going to cut that one, Moses Mordecai, whose first wife, Margaret Lane, had inherited it from her father, 
Henry Lane. In addition to the house, the park includes the birthpla birthplace of our 17th president, Andrew Johnson, who took office following the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. So Moses Mordecai not only married into the family once, but married into it twice. So this goes back to keeping money in a family. So um, Mordecai married Margaret in 1821. And just three years later, she died and left him with three small children. So because he had already married into the money, he just, uh, after that, decided to marry her younger sister, Anne Lane. So, Mortis, Mortis, I'm old, that's going to be my, uh, what was the other word we've been Bleast. 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 There's Mortis. Cause it's Mortis. a tongue Mortis. twister because you got that Bladenboro that comes yeah. after. Yeah, it's Bleast of Bladenboro. <laughs> <laughs> Moses Mordecai was a member of one of the most prominent and fascinating Jewish families in early American history. Mordecai was a lawyer and a judge. He was also a very involved Freemason in Raleigh. The Lanes, who he married into this family, were Episcopalians. So the story goes that uh, Moses Mordecai changed the pronunciation of his name from Mordecai to Mordecai, allegedly to signify the Christian branch of the Lane family and to sound less like a name of Jewish origin. So we're going back a long time, so I just imagine like uh like children of the corn, like those old outfits and just this guy having like the, the <laughs> Amish beard and like the old school farmer hat and I just imagine him standing with the pitchfork in front of the house with his with his kids. <laughs> I'm Mordecai. I'm Moses Mordecai and welcome to my haunted plantation. <laughs> Two years <laughs> later it's the same exact photo, but he has a different wife. But he's the same pose, everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we got all the you know, he married not once but twice. Um so in 1824, Mordecai hired Williams. I know these are a lot of names, but William Nichols, these are all like North Carolina Raleigh people. Uh, state, um, state, ar state architect at the time to enlarge the house. So we went on a tour of this. And the original house is like very small and normal with like normal well, ceilings. It, it's small for now. Like it would yeah, have been. It was probably a mansion by then. Yeah, day. even before it was expanded. So he hired this fella to enlarge the house. And the family did everything that they could to scream, We're rich! Um, everything from tall ceilings, like the addition to the house had tall ceilings, and they did a Greek revival double portico, which is a fancy name for a front porch with columns, and bright yellow paint <laughs> that was made from cowpea to cover that exterior. So yellow was a color that houses weren't back then because you had to get it from, um, what's the flower? Saffron. I think it was from saffron, which you know is comes grown from overseas, on, yeah. and we don't get it here. So I wonder if these people's arms hurt from keeping that pinky so high up all the time. No, yeah, yeah, they were bougie <laughs> as fuck. So. Well, uh, they were tryhards. The they were tryhards. Um, so, but no, a little bit more, if you don't mind me jumping in okay. about the uh, the yellow paint, which was like my favorite part of the tour. So if the paint was like the the really expensive imported paint it was made by saffron but there was kind of like a uh the wish.com version of this yellow paint which you could get by they fed like some sort of flowers to cows right mm -hmm. and then when they collected the urine it was like this bright yellow color and they mixed it with the paint so this you know supposedly bougie house is just covered in cowpea yeah, because so. they were trying to be bougie, but they're too. They didn't want to go all out. I guess. <laughs> I, I mean, they were rich, but they weren't like the Next richest of yeah. Rich. So they had to go with the cowpea paint instead of uh, the good stuff. They're 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 visibly rich, not uh, <laughs> actually rich. Yes, 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 yes. So there is that. So this house is bright yellow, still is. So um, at some point, this plantation grew to be very very huge like 3,000 acres so if we're thinking about that like it covers like you know i don't know how big 3,000 acres are but the lady said like two miles in any direction this property 
covers. So likely the place I work used to be part of this this plantation. So um, the descendants of uh, Moses Mordecai lived and died in the house for more than five generations until finally like the granddaughter the granddaughter of the granddaughter willed the house to the city in 1964. And now it's part of a public park that you can go visit for seven dollars. They'll take you on the tour and um, you can see all the things. But by this time, there's, you know, there's been more ghostly tales uh, talked about. So we'll just move on to the ghosts a little bit, and then I'll tell you about what we personally experienced. So the Mordecai home is known locally for its paranormal activity and is believed to be the most haunted house in Raleigh. One of the ghosts that inhabits the house is called the Lady in Gray. She is said to be the spirit of Mary Willis Mordecai Turk, who lived there from 1858 to 1937. So this is like one of the granddaughters of the original people who moved in the house. One of Moses' great-granddaughters. She appears sporadically as an apparition in a gray 19th century dress. She can occasionally be heard playing the piano in the downstairs drawing room, and visitors to the house have occasionally seen a gray mist hovering over the piano. There's also a story of a housekeeper who has been seen cleaning from time to time. She is a woman wearing a long black skirt, white blouse, and a black tie moving quietly through the hallways. It has been rumored that Margaret Moses Mordecai's first wife can sometimes be seen standing on the balcony if you pass by late at night. So also on the property adjacent to the Mordecai mansion is the birthplace and childhood home of our 17th president, Andrew Johnson. And the small house only has three windows and sometimes people have said that they have seen a candle reappear in one of the little windows and then it'll just go out as if it's been snuffed out. Nobody lives there. This is just a vacant building. So we went and did the $7 tour and it was just the oddest situation because the tour before us, there were two tours before us, they were full. Like yeah, there was like 20 people on 20 the tour. 20 people on this tour. Mm -hmm. And I brought my EMF meter and my ghost box. And when it got to our tour, she said, well, it looks like you guys are getting a private tour because nobody else has signed up for this one. I said, Win. awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, at some point, I, I got out this EMF meter and um, it popped real, real hard, like big big numbers like the highest we've ever seen it yeah yeah, yeah. and um mary willis mary willis mordecai turk her bedroom there were some, like some bustles and dolls and um the funny story about her i know i've just dropped a lot of names in this but she's also one of the granddaughters her husband had had her in institutionalized after she had a baby because she was quote filled with rage and anger okay so she had postpartum and the man put her in an institution i was joking earlier like if she could have institutionalized me for being filled with rage she'd have done it a long time yeah, ago so, several, several times so what a time to be alive back in the in the fairy tale times yes when women have postpartum and you can put them in an institution well it was either one of two things either one if you didn't like them you call them a witch or just point out like hey yeah. she can do math or two, <laughs> you just say they're insane, and nobody she's questions it. They're like, "What well, opinions about things?" <laughs> yes, yes, she's thinking. That means that she's a witch or she's insane. Women aren't supposed to think back in the 1800s. No, no. or read. So, yeah. No. How fucked up is it though that back in the day, you would it, it the woman's word didn't matter for anything. If a dude said she was insane, even if that dude was absolutely fucking batshit crazy, and she was the sane one, they'd be like, "Yep." He's fine. Even though he's uh, killing the kids in the backyard, he's fine. The wife, take her away. Well, that's kind of basically <laughs> this situation. Didn't they say the husband was kind of like not a real stand-up dude? He wasn't a real stand-up dude. And I'm pretty sure, and don't come for me, people, if I mess this story up, but 
there's a painting, I think it was of her husband when he was a child. Yeah, you know, I how think they you're had right. those creepy, creepy fucking paintings of children. <laughs> and the tour guide said that this painting is constantly falling off the mantle, off the wall, and being drugged across the floor in Mary's bedroom. So we think Mary really didn't care for um I think his name was Henry as well. But no, there are like scratch marks in yeah. the floor from where suppose and you know this is like an old painting. It's huge and the the frame is big and heavy. So what it was pretty crazy to see those scratch marks across yes. the floor because obviously like this house had been preserved, but the scratch marks in the floor looked relatively fresh. And we got some like high EMF uh, readings off of that room. Like that was lot. where the bookshelf was, wasn't it? No. Okay. No. So this was Mary's room. So at some point we went to it, this was um, another another daughter granddaughter. Um, I think it might have been Henry's daughter. So it might have been Mary's daughter. Anyway, don't come for me if I, there were so many names in this. <laughs> But he had had an entire bookshelf of books bound for her, like just for her, because they had all this money. And um, we put the EMF meter up against that, and that bookshelf popped. Like all those books just made it light up like a Christmas tree. So that was cool. And um, by this point, the tour guide's getting, like, really into this because she's like, this is super cool. She's like, I've never had someone bring one in. She said sometimes people use the ones on their phones, which I'm sorry. I have I, I don't think the ones on phones work. But yet again, maybe they do. So the books popped. Um, the ghost of Mary who loved her piano, and they were talking about how people see her. Her piano made it pop, too. Like, it went just way up. Her piano, there was a guitar in the room that made it made it pop. So, anyway, a lot of high strangeness in a lot of this, as much as there were rooms where there was nothing. So, that's kind of our um, observations. Um, this house also has, like, a paranormal research team since 2017 called the Ghost Guild Incorporated. Um, they're a registered nonprofit organization that investigates the house and its surrounding buildings. So I've signed up for their list. I'm dying to just go on one of their their things. And yeah, like a few times a year, they do like overnight investigations and things in that. Yeah, correct? and I want to do it so much. I can't stand it. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe I need to name drop. Maybe I need to say, hey, I have a podcast. Can I come on here? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'll talk I'm about you guys on my podcast. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> I'm part of a podcast. Um, this house has almost been has also been featured in a season um, of Ghost Hunters. So I think it actually was on more than one. But anyway, it's it's been on TV too, so it's kind of a big deal. But that's kind of the just of the Mordecai house. This has been absolutely fascinating. Actually, I, I got to learn some new stuff from you guys, and uh, I wasn't too familiar with a lot of stuff as far as North Carolina goes, but I'm glad we uh, evened out the score where we did the Michigan Dogman, because that was my thing. Now we did the North Carolina stuff for you guys. So now the question is, where do we venture to next? Well, since we kind of ran with this one, we're going to let you pick uh, the next area shame but no i think it's kind of interesting because north carolina is not a place that you hear about a lot as far as like cryptids and high strangeness no you know it's not washington or uh oregon or anywhere like that but um or even like the midwest with all their kind of cryptid encounters but if you dig a little deeper there is uh some weird stuff going on around here and you know this this mordecai house this is basically right down the street from where we live so um I would just encourage all of our listeners out there to get out there and explore things and learn about stuff in your area because, uh, like I always say, you don't have to dig too far below the surface before you start finding some weird stuff going on. 
I mean, that even being said, for all the listeners that are still around, we definitely would like to take in user submissions for this. So not necessarily like obviously doing the research and everything, but uh, if you guys have some local lore that is very regional specific that you guys don't think anybody outside of your area knows, just drop a name for us and we would love to cover it on the show. Or if any of you guys are from a particular area that you really want to hear some of the folklore talked about, uh, drop the name for the area because we definitely want to get you guys involved with this. And as far as like the local lore goes, we want to go super duper local. So if anybody has any of those stories that only the people in the town know, please pass them over to us so we can do some research on them and get them out in the light so people can start learning about all this stuff. And, you know, in the turn, you might end up actually helping people to figure out what's actually in their backyards and then they can start digging into stuff. So you're just helping people out. So throw your stories at us. I can't say that enough. (laughs) And hit us up on our social media. You guys know how the Internet works. Everything's in the link tree. I've been Shane. I've been Oren. And I've been Jenny. And you guys remember to keep it local and keep it bizarre out there. Bizarre. 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 Bizarre.